0: I was six, <clears throat> and we've had a blast together. Uh, thank the Lord for Crossing Community Church. You, in my mind, uh, come from greatness. You have a historical uh, bedrock, and I love you. When I was still in Bible college, I came here. We, uh, I was with a music team. We traveled all over the eastern side of Pennsylvania, and this was our base. We had housing here and ended with a big uh, alumni rally here that your church hosted. And my host um, family, the head of that household, came here. He wasn't an alumnus at all, but he came, just wanted to see me off. And my job in that assembly was to speak and to share what I was going to be doing uh, as a graduate now as I moved out into the world. And I shared with them, I really don't know, a man had sung a song called Circuit Riding Preacher Man. It's a very nice old ballad, uh, sort of in the vein of uh, Bojangles, if you know, and Circuit Riding Preacher Man. And I shared with the crowd, I'm not exactly sure what the Lord has me do, but I may just be a Circuit Riding Preacher Man. I went to the back and I talked with my host for that week and he leaned over to me and he whispered in my ear as he hugged me and he said, Freddie, just let me know if you ever need a horse. One year later, I was back here at Crossing to speak, and I was outside in front of the mill house at a picnic table, and I sat there going over my, over my notes before I would speak, and someone came up behind me and hugged me. It was the man, and he shook my hand, it, it was the old dollar handshake. Thank God for dollar handshake, and then it was a check, and he said, you're going to get this every month, so he was one of my first monthly supporters as I went on, out on the road. So my work is the work of an itinerant evangelist and Bible teacher. I speak in churches, schools, colleges, prisons, and many different places. The crowd is always changing. The message never does. I love speaking to grown-ups, and I don't speak to them any differently. I just know the only difference in kids and grown-ups is is that the grown-ups are meaner and don't learn (laughs) quite as fast. But the truth is all the same for everyone. I'm having a good time. The Lord has been so good to allow me to do the passion of my life, and it's so good to, to have another week with your kids. Uh, I love them and thank God for every moment that we've had together. Uh, one of the pastor asked me if I would say just a word uh, about our camps. About 10 years ago, we began looking at all the places that I speak, and we asked two questions. Number one, it, it, the churches, schools, Bible conferences, prisons, colleges, Where's the avenue that more people trust Jesus Christ to be their savior? Is it the Bible conferences that we do? Is it is it church meetings? One stop. Where's the avenue where most people trust Christ as savior? And it was camp. The answer came back camp. And then we asked question two: Where's the avenue where believers make the kind of discipleship style decisions that believers? should make, is that in the churches? Is it in one-stop Sundays? Is it in series? Is it in the Bible conferences? Where's the avenue where most people who are already believers make those great discipleship-style decisions like, I'm actually going to read my Bible every day, like I'm going to be pure in the Lord's eyes until I marry, I'm going to dedicate my life to the Lord, or I am going to be a witness for Jesus. Where do those camp? The answer was camp. And so we got busy and we, as they say, went out on a limb. And we we announced to people in our orbit that we wanted to build a place that would be a training ground for preparing the next generation of students to sustain the truth of the gospel and scripture. And so we launched out to build a place called Grace Farm. The only problem was we didn't have a budget. We had no budget at all. We just believed that God led us to do it, and we were going to do it until we failed. And we tell the Lord we'll need a lot of people, and we'll need a great big bag of money to do this. But we believe that you'll supply if we just wave a flag to the body of Christ and say we're trying to do something important so that America doesn't have its first godless generation. And uh, Grace Farm is a miracle. It's a standing miracle in a place called Dewey Rose, Georgia, Uh, We are the end of the Georgia Power Company transmission lines. We are at the end. In other words, what I'm telling you, to get there, you drive through a place called Sticks, and then you get to Boonies. Just keep going, and then you'll come to Grace Farm. But you sent a team there in the middle of winter. They tasted 17 degrees in Georgia, and we had a wonderful week. We still thumb through the pictures, we still there are places that are marked by Crossing Community Church forever. Scott Brubaker was there. He's almost thawed out from that trip <laughs> to Georgia in the winter. But you have marked that place. I uh, hope you guys check up on on uh, what's happening now. Uh, the John Ashton Memorial porch is still on cabin two and still looking good. The The wall that was measured by uh, your kid's shoulder width is still standing strong. We've had a wonderful time there. So I uh, appreciate your prayers for our ministries. We're headed to Maine when we leave here today, going to Maine for some town-wide uh, uh, area rallies and then a church right on Rockland Harbor uh, next Sunday. Everyone needs the gospel, amen? And people need Bible training. They need Bible teaching. We are in a famine in our country right now. Do you like when preachers tell you the truth? I don't want to get you discouraged. I want, to, I want to get you encouraged because God's Word is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. There are awesome things happening, sure, but we're in trouble in America. We, we are in a famine of Bible truth, and I want you to know that, that uh, I join you in your desires to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known and to give solid, meaty chunks of truth to those who have believed in Christ. could we pray together? Father, I pray that you teach us from your word that if there's something we come across today that we've never seen before, that we gladly accept it. Father, I pray if there's something here that disagrees with what we formerly had thought was true, that we will gladly, quickly throw out the idea that was false and that we gladly receive the word of God for what we will put in our theology box of beliefs. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. One of these days, I hope to do more writing than I've done. By the way, there are prayer cards out on a little table uh, in the foyer there. Please take one of those, put it on the refrigerator. When you go to get something to eat, you can pray for our family. And I also put some little first steps for new believers. Uh, If you were at camp, trusted Christ your Savior, I'd love to, to give you one of those little yellow books. Laid alongside your Bible, you're just going to eat the truth like ice cream, guys, and you'll know more about God than your mama does. But I'd love for you to have that, and some of those are free for you. Just like salvation, someone else paid it, yours for free. So I want to write a book called How Good Do You Have to Be to Go to Heaven, and that probably will beg a companion book called How Bad Do You Have to Be to Go to... Now, you were supposed to help me with that. How good do you you have to be to go to heaven? How bad do you have to be to go to... You had to think it through, didn't you? Well, that's okay. So I want to start with a question this morning, and then I want to follow it with a series of questions, we'll pull the answers from the Bible. Is that good? Is that good? All right. How bad is man? How bad is our condition before God? I mean, how far away are we from God, and what are we supposed to do, if anything, about that bad condition that we're in? So the question on the floor right now is, how bad is man in the eyes of God. So here's the answer we're bad. We're really, really bad. Jeremiah 17, if you would join me there. Jeremiah 17, here's a power verse in the scriptures quoted often. A uh, few people ever turn to it, but I'd like to do that this morning to start us off. How bad is man? He's bad. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it, says the Lord. So anyone ought to be convinced. How, how bad are we before God? We're bad. Our hearts are deceitful. And God says our hearts are deceitful above all things, and they are desperately what? Wicked. And so man is in a bad place with God. Now, if you read verse 10, it'll give you an idea of what's to come. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit Of his doing. So you get the idea. That God is looking at man. And God says man is bad. His heart is bad. Is blackened rot in his heart. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. But I'm watching the man. And I am going to do. According as the man does. So that gives you. If you're honest with what this says. It gives you an idea that God is watching man. And there's some hope. There is some Hope that man could actually do something that God would think is okay. Don't you get that idea from verse number 10? Now, here's another passage. You can let Jeremiah go. Look over at Romans in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You'll have to turn quickly now. Romans chapter 3. Now, catch me when you can. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, "As as it is written... There's none righteous, no, not one. So in God's eyes, we have the truth. We are bad. There's not a one of us that is righteous in God's eyes. So if the question is how bad is man, man is really bad. And there's not not any of us that are righteous. It doesn't matter how many prayers a person would make. It doesn't matter how many good things they do. The Bible said by grace are you saved. It'll have to be by grace or none of us are going to be saved. That's how bad we are. Now, would you join me in Psalm 19? Psalm 19. And let's digest this. Psalm 19. Now, if you crack your Bible open right in the middle, do the best you can to split it right down the middle, you'll probably land in the book of Psalms and find Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This often quoted, but I want to spend a bit more time then just to quote a verse or two. Look at this, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. What did he say? God is talking through the heavens. And I want to ask you a question. To whom is God talking? He says the heavens declare. The heavens are declaring then. He says the firmament shows his handiwork. That is, the firm things that God has made... Up in the heavenlies, they are declaring. To whom? You see, there are some who think that man is so bad, that man is is such refuse in the eyes of God, that man can know nothing of God. His, His case is is too much, he's so rotten, he's so unplugged, he's so distant from God that man can know nothing of God, can think nothing of God, can analyze nothing from God, he cannot learn about God. Therefore, if man is that bad, if man is that far off from God, if man is so absolutely as dumb as a bucket of rocks towards God, then we place ourselves in a position that all are going to hell unless... God does everything to save something. But here is God declaring from the heavens toward man. So God is in disagreement. If we think that man is so far away from God that man can't think about God, that man can't make judgments about God then we're in disagreement with the psalmist. He says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God to man. Look at verse 2. Day unto day, utter his speech. Night unto night, showeth... Look at the word. Knowledge. So God is showing knowledge to man. God is revealing himself to man. God is declaring himself to man. And God expects that man... As bad as he is, that man is to pay attention, to think about God, to analyze what man sees and what the heavens declare about God. So the answer is man is bad. But man is not so bad that he's outside the revelation of God's knowledge. Man is not so bad that man cannot believe in God. So that God is is left in a position that man can't do a thing. He's as dumb as a bucket of rocks. And so God has to sort of zap someone to know something about God. That is not, ladies and gentlemen, the position of the Word of God. It is expected that we pay attention to the creation of God and the power of it all revealed by God Himself through His creation. And so it's bad for man But man is not so bad that he can't think about God, consider about God, make judgments about God, and believe what God reveals to him. Verse 3, he says, There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And so there's hope for those who are living in the tribe, for those on the dark continents. There's hope for them because every day, every person in every place today has an opportunity to live in a world that will have a sun ball of fire burning 93 million miles away that has man's full attention. There is no speech problem. Everybody ought to be able to get it. Wait. That ball of fire in the sky had to be put there by somebody bigger than I. Who? And so man can question about God. Man can analyze the facts of what is known. John chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible promises that Jesus Christ lights every person who comes into the world. John 1.5. John 1.9 carries the same truth. That when people come into the world as creations of God under Adam's DNA, they have a little light from God. Romans chapter 1 refers to the same thing. I hate to leave Psalm 19 so quickly. There's a lot here, but I think you follow the truth here that man is responsible under this revelation God has made from the heavens. Man is responsible to receive that and think about that and analyze that and make judgments about that. And yes, man is bad, but man is not as dumb As a bucket of rocks, man can know about God. But now, would you join me in Romans chapter 1? Romans in chapter 1, back over in the New Testament, Romans and chapter 1. A very frequent question asked is, well, what about people who never heard? And the answer always runs to Romans chapter 1. But we haven't considered Romans chapter 1 with this question, how bad is man? He's bad, but he's not so bad that he can't believe the things that God has made known. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 19. Because that which may be what? Known of God is manifest Where? Where is what can be known about God made known in them? And so we, we carry this inbred knowledge about God. And this is what we call general revelation. That everyone has this. We have this little light. This little light of mine. We have this little light that was put there by God that's in our conscience. And he says, God has showed it unto them. Look at this. Verse 20. For the invisible things of him... From the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being under... What? I thought we were as dumb as... Being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. So the people who don't respond to this revelation from God... God says they're without excuse. And so could you for a moment believe then that God has made people and he purposefully made them not able to know him? And that in fact he made them as dumb as a bucket of rocks toward him. And then God stands in front of them and says, you're without excuse. That would be such a hurtful, harmful thing to believe. That we were made by God to not know Him. And then we stand before Him and He shows us and He says, You're to blame. You're the blame. Why you don't know me. That's completely out of balance. That's completely unscriptural. And I'm glad that I don't believe that. And I don't believe that you do either. Does God then... Do it all when someone is saved? Is it left to God that he has built people who are as dumb as a bucket of rocks? They can't see God, can't understand God, can't analyze, can't make judgments. And so God made a whole bunch of people and all of them are going to hell unless God does it all, so to speak, and makes some people to be saved. Does God do it all? Well, God expects man to believe. He expects Man to believe. And he's upset if a person doesn't believe. Join me, John chapter 3. John and chapter 3. To the left of Romans, John now and chapter 3. Look at verse 18. Verse 17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 18 now, he that believeth on him is not condemned. That's my group. How about yours? There are two groups in verse 18. One group, those people believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that group is not condemned. Now, you understand this. My group is not going to be condemned because Jesus was already condemned for us, and we have rested our faith in him and God has declared that we are righteous in his eyes because of Jesus. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did then, I am not condemned by God. This is basic theology, justification by faith. Is that good? Is that good? Looking for excitement? All right, good. But look at now the other group. He says, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Stop right there. So what if it were true that man could not believe that man is in fact as dumb as a bucket of rocks? He had no power. To, he's so bad. He's so absolutely depraved that he can't even believe. Well, then we would have God condemning people for doing what they could not do. Does that fit your view of God? It doesn't mind. And so the Bible reveals to us that man is really bad, but man is not so bad, he's not so far away that he cannot respond to what God has made known. And God expects that when he makes himself known that people will follow the truth, that people will connect the dots of God's revelation, and that people will believe in him and so that when they don't, God is upset with them. And so is this these people who believe not in Jesus Christ... That they have this condemnation. He says, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now now get this. These people are condemned for what reason? Is it because they have a lot of sin? No, no. I have a lot of sin. But I'm not condemned because I believed. Stop looking at me that way. You have a lot of sin too, mister. It's not... The amount of our sins that causes God to condemn us. And it's not that someone does the one big nasty sin. And God says, oh boy, they've done that one now. Toast. It's not a big nasty sin that causes God to condemn someone. No, no, no. They are not condemned because of their sin. Because the sin got paid. You can say amen if you'd like. The sin got paid. That all, all the sin got paid. It got paid. All mine got paid. Yours did too. It got paid. The sin got paid. He's he's condemning people because they did not believe in the one that was clearly revealed by the truth of God. Is that good? Is that good? I hope this helps you out because it can really change your view of the one we're singing to. This is really good. This is so enlightening. This is so freeing to me to know that man expects, uh, God expects man To believe in Christ. And if man doesn't believe in Christ. That's what brings the condemnation with God. Not sin. That got paid. All right, here's another question for you. Did Jesus die for everyone's sin? Can I just go out there on the street. And can I I actually approach people and say. God loves you. And because he did. Jesus died for you. Or am I up against. An idea that's flowing across America right now. That. Jesus didn't really die for everyone. Then I have to be careful with that. Because maybe Jesus only paid this limited payment for sin and, and not everyone. Do I have to subject myself to that? Should, should I just have a confidence I can go out and tell people about the love of God? I was in Florida a few years ago and, and I saw one of those skywriters. He came out in his airplane and he began to write and he, he made a big circle and he wrote, Christ died all in smoke. And I'll guarantee you, there must have been like a half a million people cheering him on. Because it was a windy day. And I knew what he was trying to get out of those smoke jets. Christ died. And as he began, four, this big... Big letter F. I thought he would never make it until the winds blew his smoke away. And by the time he got to the first word, he was fighting. So uh, the last word he was fighting, that you had to finish it before the first word was not any longer readable. Christ died for, and there it comes, a big Y and a big O and a big U. And he revved his engine. He made the first leg of an exclamation point and put the dot at the end. And I just stood there wanting to cheer. But is he wrong? Can you just fly out over central Florida? And could you just tell all those... Must have been a half million people standing like I was watching the letters form. Could I just do that and be confident that I speak the truth? God loves everyone and Jesus died for everyone's sin. Look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We should go here. Mark chapter 10 now... And verse number 45, Mark 10, and verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many, and so he died for many. Now, I know that you wish that that said that he died for all. That would make the case, huh? Um? But it says, for many. Back up, Skippy. To say that many is true might very well mean that all is true. Say that a a teenager were to clean the room. Discover that, in fact, there is a carpet in that room. (laughs) And that night, the mother is talking to another mother and text... He cleaned so many things out of his floor. Is that to eliminate the idea that there is no way that he cleaned all the things from the floor of that room? No. To say he cleaned so many things in his floor today would not necessarily mean that he did not clean everything that was in that floor. Well, let's compare scripture with scripture. Let Mark ten forty-five go, and would you meet me in Second Corinthians chapter five? 2 Corinthians five. Look at verse number nineteen. Second Corinthians, you'll find it, or if you're Donald Trump, Two Corinthians. He did in fact reference the Bible, though, not all do. Second Corinthians five and verse number nineteen, In all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And so we have here this large, encompassing group of people described by Paul the Apostle as the world whose sin was paid by Jesus Christ. Let Second Corinthians 5 go. I hope you mark this up in your Bible. People don't know the Bible says these things. Look over at 1 John chapter 2. Remember the question on the floor is, did Jesus die for everyone? Did he die for all? Can we confidently approach someone on the street or in our backyard and tell them Jesus, in fact, died for you? Or is there a hesitation on our part because we secretly believe that he only died for those who one day will be in heaven with him? Well, the Bible says that he reconciled the world to himself. Now, uh, 1 John, in chapter 2, verse number 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not... And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let me just say that an advocate is a lawyer. Please hold your jokes, please. This lawyer is faultless. He is one who speaks well of us in heaven. Jesus Christ now planted by the right hand of God, who is backing the payment He paid on earth for our sin. In verse two, he says, "And he is the propitiation, that means a satisfactory payment. Jesus is the satisfactory payment for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That would cover the man at Burger King today. Hmm? That would cover the man behind the checkout at the grocery store. That would cover your neighbor. Jesus died. For everyone, and dear friend, that includes you. Jesus loves you and died for you. Is that good? Is that good? Not just for saved people, but he died for all. All right, now, here's another question. If Jesus died for all, why are all not saved? John chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, now in chapter 6. Now look at verse 47. He says, verily, verily, that means truly, truly, or I'm telling you what's true. But he says it twice. So when you get a double verily in God's word, you need to take that really seriously because God is essentially repeating himself. And so he says, verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, Jesus is backing this by his own word, his own reputation, his own truth. Jesus backs it himself. This is not something we read on a cheap internet site. This is spoken from the word of God personally himself. And here's what he says. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That's the bar right there. That's the separator right there. That's the threshold in God's word. People who do not have everlasting life don't have it because they didn't believe in Christ. Those people who will end up separated from God in a place called hell will go there not because of their sin, because that got paid, that got paid, all of it got paid. But they don't go to heaven because they didn't have everlasting life. And they don't have everlasting life because they did not believe in Christ. And they will be without excuse because they did not receive what God made clearly known to them. Do you understand this? Do you understand? Boy, does this ever free me to want to go and share the gospel with people. You're not excited about this. That really frees me. I know that I will hit the mark if I go out there and I tell someone, I got good news for you, buddy. Jesus died for you. I can do that. You know, it's becoming in our culture wrong to be certain of things. Have you picked up on this? You are are considered arrogant if you are certain about things. In our culture anymore, you're not even supposed to be certain that you're in the right bathroom. Because someone might look down on you and think that you're condemning them because of where you went to the bathroom. Boy, it's madness out there. But it sounds to me like God wants us to be certain of something. Something. That if I believe in Jesus Christ, I have everlasting life. But those who don't have everlasting life, it all comes down to this. It's not a matter of how much sin or how bad the sin was. They didn't believe the one who paid for all that sin. Is that good? Is that good? See, the gospel is good news. It still is. It's good news for everybody. It's just that some reject the good news of Jesus Christ. Some people aren't even happy on their own birthday. But God cannot be blamed when people reject a sinless God dying on a cross, dying six hours, dripping his own puddle of blood on the ground that they could taste everlasting life. But some won't take it. God is a gentleman. God will never force everlasting life on people who do not want it. But why don't we make that message known to everyone that we can? hmm? Here's another one. If God wants someone saved, can a person resist that? If God wants someone saved, can a person resist? Look over with me, 1 Timothy, way near the back of your Bible, 1 Timothy. If you get to Hebrews, you went a little far, you'll find it, 1 Timothy In chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, I'll begin in verse 1, catch me when you can. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Three, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Four, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of Of the truth. What does God's word say? That God wills that everyone would be saved. So that people come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ. Verse 5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for. There it is again. Now we come to the idea. Did Jesus die for many or did he die for all? who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Is that good? Is that good? And so, man absolutely can resist God. God wills that they all be saved, but they are not. Why? Didn't believe. They had the knowledge, but didn't believe. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew in chapter 23. The question on the floor is, if God wants someone saved, can people resist? Now, Matthew... And chapter 23, this is a tough passage of Scripture. One of the toughest scenes in the Bible to me, Matthew 23. Jesus is overlooking Jerusalem. He will die in about four days for everyone in the world. And he looks out over this city and he says this, Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that what? Killest the prophets and stone is them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Can man resist the revelation of God? Oh, absolutely. Sadly, sadly, and Jesus cries as he overlooks this city, that of all cities should have known better. And he says, you killed my prophets when I sent them to you. Do you think God wanted them to receive the word of the prophet? He said, your fathers stoned the men that I brought to tell them the truth. And now here I am, and you will reject me too. How often I would have gathered your children like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but I didn't because you would Not Friend, the news is all good for you today. God loves you just the way you are. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, down to planet earth, the word of God. And in human time and in a geographical place, on the ground, Jesus Christ went on a cross. For six hours, he bore your sin and mine in his body on the cross. This is verifiable, doctrinally sound. He died for you. God expects you to respond positively to that message. Hmm? God says that if you don't, you would be condemned, not because of your sin, but because you didn't believe in Him. You can believe. You can't. It's possible. You are not as dumb as a bucket of rocks toward God. You can know. You can think. You can analyze. You can make your judgment about God. And God expects people to believe because they can. And the good news is that if you do, God promises everlasting life. John 5, 24, he says, Whoever hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Does that sound to you like a deal that is done For those who believe in Christ, it does to me. I triple guarantee from Jesus Christ, anyone who will believe in what God has done to pay for sin and take it away. And to give people the free gift of God, everlasting life. Final question. For those who are saved, will they stay saved and be obedient to God until they die? The answer, yes, they will stay saved. You cannot define everlasting life in any other way that everlasting life means everlasting life. Or as Dr. Ryrie once said, if everlasting life is not everlasting life, they named it the wrong thing in the Bible. But will they remain obedient until they die? Not necessarily. There is a carnal believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 from verse 14 all the way down to 3.1 one. There are three kinds of people in the world. There's a natural man, and they don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. The second kind is a spiritual person. He's a believer, and he's doing well in his spiritual decision-making. But then number three, there's someone who's not spiritual, but he's carnal. And he will pay dearly for his decision to not follow through until the end of his life. He will pay dearly with loss of fellowship, loss of joy, loss of purpose, and many things that could be lost by a believer. But you could not lose everlasting life that got paid by someone else and given to you for free. Is that good? Is that good? We have, friends, the best news that's ever been revealed to the brain of man. We hold it and have it. Trust Christ. It'll be everlasting life for you. Tell someone what Jesus did for them. You will be conducting yourself to do man's most noble act. You could not do better. I have two questions for you. Number one. Is that good news for you today, that you would believe in Christ to save you? He loves you, died for you, paid every sin, past, present, future, little ones, big ones, secret ones, all got paid. The heaven, heaven's gate is standing wide open for you. You could enter in by believing in Christ. Freddie, are you saying all I have to do is believe in Jesus, I'll have eternal life? Look, I'm saying that's all you can do is believe in him. We don't have anything else that would move God to save. If you do that right now, God will give you eternal life. That's the greatest thing that you could ever do. To rest your faith in Christ. And now you can have absolute assurance that you're in the family of God and there to stay. Not on your goodness, but on his. Question number two, I told you. Doesn't God sound so good and so honorable and so holy that you believe that he's the best thing you could talk about? He's the highest thought you could think in a day. He's the only one worthy of our songs. Lord, thank you for this church, this pastor, and Lord, what you want to do here. And we pray that they will make a great big deal about revealing you to this community in our world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.